Hi, everybody. Welcome to the January 19th, 2019 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Tizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. I have often said the five minutes before we roll tape is the best part of the show. If that's any inclination what the rest of the show is going to be, this one's going to be a humdinger. Set the DVR right now. Let's get a quick take on the RTD celebrating 1,000 days since the beginning of the operation of the A-Line train to the airport. RTD's press release today claimed that the A-Line has made $2 billion of direct economic impact to the city. The cynic in me can't help but to imagine what the fiscal impact would have been if it had been operational throughout that entire 1,000 days, but that's just me. Patty Cahoon from Westward, am I being too cynical? Well, the cynic in me, when this popped up in my email this morning, thought the last person who celebrated 1,000 days was Anne Boleyn, and we know how well that ended. <laughs> you know, the thing about the A-Line is when it is good, it is very, very good, and when it is bad and you're trying to catch a plane and you're going to miss it, it is horrid. Craig Silverman, attorney with Silverman Olivas and a radio talk show host at KNUS 710 every Saturday morning from 9 to noon. Uh, a thousand days is a moment to celebrate? It is for me. It's funny you should ask this because this past fall I took the A train to stay in room 1017 at the DIA Weston. And what a view from that room. But the ride, the ride was fast fun and convenient. And the price was right back. The ticket seller said, are you a senior? I said, well, if you have to ask, I guess I am. <laughs> it's, it's good to know you're getting good service there, uh, Craig. Uh, political analyst Eric Sonderman joins us. Eric, you have advised a lot of folks on press releases throughout your career. Was this a good one to release for RTD? RTD Flax are paid to put out releases like this, so they're, they're just doing their job. I've often commented that the A-line is a symptom of the great inflation that is rampant throughout our society. This is not an A-line. This is a B-minus, C-plus, maybe just a straight C-line. It is not an A-line. And you would think maybe in the second thousand days they can figure out the gate crossings and, and the timing and the technology of those since they obviously couldn't do it in the first thousand. Ed Seeliver from the Denver Business Journal rounds up the panel for us. What do you think of the number 2 billion, that is billion with a B, of direct economic impact from the A-line? The last time the Colorado Brewers Guild did an economic impact on their industry, which is 400 breweries in this state, it was almost 2 billion. Really? RTD's got that much of an impact on this one particular line? The other thing I will note is very interesting to see RTD lauding the A-line, considering the last 27 press releases have been about legal actions against the operators, the A-line. So, congrats! You reached 1,000 days. Let's hope the next 1,000 go better for you. Here, here. Denver Public Schools and the Denver Classroom Teachers Association continued contract negotiations this week. The largest sticking point seems to be the amount of the teacher pay increase. The district has proposed providing $23 million for a 10% hike, but the union wants to see $30 million and higher education incentives for teachers. The union officially filed an intent to strike this week, and if they do, it would be the first teacher strike in Denver in over 20 years. Patty, do you think a strike is really on the table? Sure it is. There are going to be votes um, today, no, Saturday and then Tuesday. The earliest a strike could happen would be Tuesday night. They're only about $4 million apart right now. They've got four days to solve it, but it's going to be sticky. I mean, I wonder how Susanna Cordova is enjoying her first days <laughs> at the top. How much fun for her. And I wonder if Roy Romer is going to ride to the rescue. Remember when he did that back in 1994? So far, we haven't seen Jared Polis show any inclination to jump in. But the news of this stalemate ha 
first of all, it makes the A-line look like a smooth ride. But the news of the stalemate has certainly um, overshadowed any good news about graduation rates, which we heard from DPS and Jeffco and Aurora this year, this week. Craig, this seems right now in Denver to be a very union-friendly environment for the teachers' union. I realize this is DPS versus the teachers' union, but you have Denver uh, as blue as it's ever been, uh, approving every tax increase. It is is boom times right now for everybody uh, Democratic. Are you surprised to see the union and the school district at odds? Well, I'm not surprised that it goes down to the wire. I think you've diagnosed it, and that's why I don't anticipate a walkout, an actual strike. Um, It's the left versus the left. And uh, I think Jared Polis may ride into the rescue. I am a proud Denver Public Schools graduate, Ellis, Fallis, Hill Junior High, back when we had junior highs, George Washington High School. Denver Public Schools, since I graduated, or shortly thereafter, always seems under pressure one way or the other. Actually, when I was going, when desegregation started, Uh, And there's been a struggle for money. I think back to Michael Bennett, and he's done some good things for Colorado, but he lost a ton of money in Wall Street there. Then you had time, I'm going on sabbatical, Boesberg, and then paving the way for the single finalist, Susanna Cordova. It seems like sort of an inside game, uh, but strikes are disruptive. I hope they don't have one. It's just like a government shutdown. It hurts the people. Mm -hmm. Eric, are we seeing some standard negotiation tactics right here? Yeah, we're seeing a teachers union, which both locally and nationally, look at what's going on in Los, An- going on in Los Angeles at the moment, is feeling its oats. And you started seeing that last year in Colorado and in Arizona and elsewhere. So, yes, unions are energized. Uh, a lot of the ed reform movement in Denver has been in the forefront of that, whatever that phrase means these days, is, is feeling somewhat in retreat, at least in my estimation. I guess my own take on this, I hope it doesn't go to a strike, but I think the district is already caved in a lot of respects. I mean, the notion that you can't have differentiated pay or accelerated pay based on performance, based on teachers who are willing to go into high poverty schools, those are major steps backward in my mind, not steps forward. Teachers good teachers ought to be paid much more. There is no dispute about that, but there needs to be some differentiation. I look back at my kids' experience when, in, in public schools, in Denver public schools, and my own take was about 60, 65% of their teachers were solid A teachers. They're doing the Lord's work, and by God, they ought to be getting paid more than they're getting paid. But there was 35 or 40% of their teachers, and I mean, we're talking about the A line here and, and grade inflation, 35 or 40 percent of their teachers were C's or C minuses or worse. And they should have been in another line of work. But in the current construct, they're all paid more or less the same. If you want to be treated as a professional, then you ought to have some performance standards and not some uniform pay system. Ed, do you think that DPS and union are really that far apart? Is this kind of the drama of negotiation? Well, I mean, from what I've seen and what I've read, it seems like now they're down from $30 million apart to $7 million apart in salaries. Um, and I really question if $7 million apart is going to justify a strike. Uh, I mean, you're right. Both the teachers and the unions are riding big waves right now. The teachers saw a lot of public support for people wanting to see them get more pay when they marched uh, last year. The unions uh, are feeling pretty good because Democrats swept across Colorado offices. Um, but I don't know that that good feeling continues 
if schools are closed for a week or more and parents say, wait, what am I going to do with my kids? What if I'm a, a low-income working parent and I have no idea how I'm going to pay for my kids to be with somebody or, or, or whatnot? I think strikes test the public goodwill in a way that is vastly underestimated by the people who are about to go on them. Yes, Denver wants to see its teachers paid more. If that means the schools are going to be closed for weeks on end, I'm not sure that Denver is going to be so much behind the teachers anymore. Good point. Governor Jared Polis sent a request for $227 million for his full-day kindergarten plan to the Joint Budget Committee this week. The reactions and how quickly those reactions changed was telling. On Tuesday, the plan was met with skepticism from two Democrats in the JBC, who openly wondered about the lack of funding for transportation. But a day after the meeting with Governor Polis, both Senators Dominic Moreno and Rachel Zinzinger released statements that suddenly supported the program. Craig, were you surprised as, as, as much as I was about the speed of the change of opinion from two influential senators sitting on the JBC? No. There's a new boss in town. His name is Jared Polis. And I could have warned you, elect the first Jewish governor, there will be a big emphasis on getting a good education. Become a doctor, a lawyer. If you can't do that, become a governor. Okay? And it starts early with kindergarten. And he talked about it at the state of the state and even part of his inaugural speech. And he's got two kids. Patty talked about it last week. Adorable. Caspian Julius, who asked his little sister, Cora Barucha, what is your party? And she said, the happy birthday party. So he loves kids. He was at a DPS school this week reading the kids. And uh, he's also made moves on climate change with a Hebrew-sounding word, Zeb, Zero Emission Vehicles, and uh, that's an interesting program. And another promise fulfilled by Jared Polis, um, interesting start to his term. An interesting start indeed. Uh, Eric, is Polis more persuasive than we may have, than I guess was advertised during the campaign? We'll see over the long term, but clearly new governors get a honeymoon, and I think Polis has his honeymoon. It's a honeymoon among a friendly audience with two Democratic houses of the legislature, and they're going to be deferential to him for some period of time and to some degree. We've all seen many governors and many years and many legislative sessions go by, and ultimately the JBC has the largest hand in writing that budget. This is a legislative, a strong legislature state, and the JBC has much more of a role historically than the executive branch does. We'll see how this plays out. A favorable statement from Dominic Moreno, Rachel Zenziger in January does not necessarily determine what a budget's going to look like at the end of March or, or, or first of April here. Uh, I guess my question is, you know, related to the first topic, Dominic, if we're having trouble funding K-12 education as it is, where are they going to come up with the money for full-day kindergarten? No one doubts it's a laudable goal. Half the school districts in this state approximately are on four-day weeks. So as long as you are struggling, not even dealing with the transportation issue, but as long as you're struggling to fund uh, current educational programs, I think there is going to be some pushback to expanding the burden here uh, of taking on full-day kindergarten, and ultimately where Polis wants to go is uh, with a much more robust early childhood education program across the state. 
And you're a guy in the Hill. What was the reaction to the sudden change of mind? Well, I, I think one thing that's important to remember is that these budget hearings in the past have not been confrontational sessions, even uh, you know when, when there might be a split JBC. Um, they typically are time to hear what the governor has to say, take it in, uh, and then the JBC is known pretty well for saying, that's nice, and going ahead and running what they want. I'm a little surprised, particularly that Rachel Zanzinger, who's been a longtime transportation advocate, didn't go after Polis in person at the hearings. But I don't think it means that they're not going to look for a way to put transportation into the budget. I think it means they didn't feel like picking a fight right then and there. Um, uh, you know, the, the issues that are going to come forward are, are many. Um, and uh, and uh, I think one thing that was very interesting as well is that two days after Zenzinger speaks up and says, look, where are we getting transportation funding from? Really expressing, expressing disappointment that polls had no ideas for them. Um, you see Casey Becker come out at a forum I hosted for the Colorado Chamber of Commerce yesterday saying, um, we're thinking about asking for essentially a son of referendum C. You let us keep uh, excess revenue above the Tabor cap. We'll put it to transportation K-12 and higher education. So there also may have been some shift where somebody may have said, hey, I've got a plan for you. Don't jump on Polis right now because we may have a better idea. Um, but I wouldn't read too much into the sudden shift. There's a lot of fighting to go over the next three months here. Petty, is uh, discretion the better part of valor here or did the two senators get rolled by a new governor? Well, he definitely is enjoying a honeymoon right now, and it's a well-funded honeymoon because Colorado has been collecting a lot more money than had been anticipated, certainly much more. He's in a much better position than when John Hickenlooper took office eight years ago. And like any honeymoon, we know there's a lot of closed doors, and things are going on behind those closed doors. We will wait to find out who's getting screwed in the end. But I think... We will see there are plenty of opportunities for transportation funding <laughs> proposals to be made and then get shot down, and we've got months left to see what's going on. Did I not promise you a good show? <laughs> I promise you a good show. 2019, we're here now at the park. You're welcome, Colorado. <laughs> Fundraising reports were released this week for the Denver mayoral candidates as Michael Hancock formally announced his bid for re-election. Hancock enters the race with over $1 million in his war chest, but his current opponents also reported strong numbers for the end of 2018. Eric, an incumbent always walks into a race stronger than the opponents, usually financially. Uh, is this an overwhelming advantage or what we should expect at this stage of the game? It's what you should expect. It's a notable advantage, but a million dollars, a million dollars is real money, don't get me wrong, but it's not going to win a mayoral election. There's an early primary going on, in my mind, for who is the alternative candidate who is going to emerge to take on Michael Hancock. Jamie Gillis had a very good quarter. She raised almost as much money in the last quarter as Hancock did. Obviously, Hancock had 700,000 uh, 700, or something like that in the bank beforehand. Uh, our friend around this table, Penfield Tate, was lagging somewhat in the money. I guess the point I would make, Dominic, is... Unlike gubernatorial races, we saw with Jared Polis, unlike Senate races where the money is such a big deal, Denver history not, uh, over not that many years is, is rife with candidates who were not the big fundraisers. You go back to Federico Pena, go back to Wellington Webb, go back to a gentleman named Michael Hancock eight years ago. They weren't the ones leading the pack and fundraising early on. There are different dynamics that work uh, in a mayor's race. Somebody's going to emerge to be a serious challenger, in my estimation. We don't yet know whom, but Jamie Gillis perhaps has an early leg up. 
Ed, is the business community a bit divided on this one? You have a strong incumbent who has done clearly a lot with developers, but you have Jamie Gillis over here who has also done a lot in her own uh, way. Uh, do you have a sense of if, the, if there is an advantage for any candidate at this point in the business community? Yeah, I mean, the business community has largely been a, a Hancock-favoring community so far. Uh, there have been some missteps he's made with them, but uh, for the most part, when you look back at everything from the, the, the camping ban to his coming out against the Green Roofs Initiative to all kinds of things like that. Um, you see support there. I expect he will continue to get a lot of support there. And in fact, I think that's going to be what the contenders who are running against Michael Hancock are running to do. Say, who is going to be the most anti-Hancock? I think there's a little bit of personal ethics issues at play here. I, I don't think a little bit. I think a serious amount. Um, but I think there is going to be the Hancock sold the city out to development angle, too. And I think the important thing to remember when we're talking about his money, his money needs to get him 50% plus one. He falls anywhere short of that, then it's going to be a one-on-one race for a month with someone in the runoff, in which you really get the pro-Hancock versus anti-Hancock visions out there. Uh, and if we want to realize just how important that is, remember, Chris Fromberg got 48%, the Hancock's 31 percent in 2011 before they went into the runoff when Chris Romer took an absurd turn toward social issues and Hancock smoked him. But that's the important thing is that if they can just get it down to one-on-one, I don't think the money matters as much. Then it becomes really about the vision of Denver. Patty, what do you think? From the numbers we've seen, it seems that the incumbent mayor, Hancock, is in a strong position, but it's January. Well, and incumbents are generally in good positions unless they have snowballed snowfall on election day, as happened to Mayor McNichols. Uh, Jamie Gillis did raise as much money just about as in the last quarter, but that was also her first quarter race uh, in the race. I think Ed's exactly right, which is you have to get that 50% if you're Michael Hancock or else you are just going to be beaten up nonstop by people who are tired, want anyone but Hancock. And what's really going to matter is the ground game. And that is something you can't really buy. You've got to have, unless you have a want to pay for a very expensive organizer, but people who are fueled by passion and want to go knock on their neighbor's doors, that's going to make the big difference. The, the public appearances and the word of mouth and the people feeling they're really being listened to. And I think a lot of people think they haven't been listened to over the last eight years. Craig, what do you think we'll see from Mayor Hancock in order to try to keep his advantage at this point? Well, he's a cheerleader for himself. He's got, he's regained some momentum after the Leslie Branch wise sex texting debacle. Is that over? I'm not sure. Fundraising for Jamie Gill is pretty good. Penn Tate, I was surprised he did not uh, raise more, but when I hear about a one-on-one, that would be a heck of a matchup. Lisa Calderon, surprised how weak her numbers were. Mary Hancock is vulnerable, and I think he understands it on this safe injection side issue. And he's reversed course on Nine News with Kyle Clark, There's a lot of pressure. Is Denver really that liberal? Probably. Is Colorado that liberal? I doubt it. Will a mayoral candidate take him on on this? It would be hard to take him on now that he says uh, we're going to push the brakes. Uh, Kudos to the people of my radio station for, in my opinion, uh, presenting the correct argument. Denver does not want to be the first safe injection site in America. 
As the partial federal shutdown becomes the longest in our nation's history, this week, its effects in Colorado are becoming more apparent. Donations to TSA employees and businesses offering federal worker discounts are becoming more and more common throughout Colorado. Ed, what do we need to know about the uh, shutdown's impacts in Colorado? I think what we need to know is that Colorado is actually weathering it better than other states right now. I mean, you've seen recent reports that Rocky Mountain National Park is still clean and functioning, unlike you see the reports of Joshua Tree National Park trees dying in absence of workers. Uh, you see flights continuing to go through Denver International Airport. Uh, you are not seeing that kind of continuous movement elsewhere. Yes, we are seeing a lot of people who, and I'm not uh, minimizing this at all, who are living paycheck to paycheck, who need help, and we are seeing a lot of business businesses and a lot of nonprofits stepping up to help them. And I think that's a great spirit of Colorado. In fact, I think that's why you see so many federal workers who are still on the job here not getting paid. Uh, it's something about the spirit of the state. Um, but don't forget, let's remember that Michael Bennett came out with a very important point this week, and that is that there are nearly 1,100 requests into the, tra- uh, the TTB, which regulates alcohol licensing to get labels for beers that are backed up. So once we've gotten to the point where Michael Bennett is calling on the damage to the craft beer community and making his point to end the shutdown, you know it's gotten serious. We know Colorado's lying too far. Uh, Patty, <laughs> gift cards for TSA agents. Do you ever think you'd see the day? I'm going to give them some when I try to fly out on Sunday morning. Uh, it is true that Denver is, uh, Colorado is doing better than much of the rest of the country, and businesses have really stepped up. In fact, Oblio's, the pizza place in Park Hill, got the main shout out in a New York Times story about how people are helping out. But it would be nice if the Washington folks that are putting us in this stalemate actually sat down and behaved like adults. Craig, speaking of those Washington folks, does this shutdown stick to President Trump? Oh, yeah. This is the Trump shutdown. He said, I'll take the mantle over border security. Well, where was he during the two years that Republicans controlled everything? And if your answer is Paul Ryan, well, why didn't you shut it down on Paul Ryan? At least you would have had more leverage. He's picking a fight with the House right now, just like he has with Bob Mueller, because these are the people coming after him. So he wants to pick this fight. I fear it's going to go on for a long time. And he's holding government workers and all of us, in effect, hostage. This is no way to do it. They had a deal. He hears Limbaugh and Coulter. It's outrageous. It is the Trump shutdown, and it's hurting America. And I'm afraid it's going to go on for quite a while. Eric, wrap it up for us. Do you see an end in sight? I'll try to be quick. I, there will be an end in sight, but I don't think it's in the near-term vision. Uh, it's a contest of who's going to blink, and uh, Donald Trump doesn't show the inclination of blinking, and Nancy Pelosi certainly doesn't show the inclination of blinking. It's all about the wall. Uh, Awful silly issue in my mind uh, to be shutting down the whole government, and as Ed and others pointed out, it is about individual people and a whole lot of people, Colorado and elsewhere, living paycheck to paycheck, and you shouldn't lose sight of those human consequences. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, as you know, Dominic, we're very upset that you didn't put the fast food feast on the table that I'm you so promised. Sorry. But in lieu of that, I'll say the mess that is stemming from the Women's March out of D.C. that has affected many different cities, let's hope Denver's Women's March, with an X instead of an E, works out well tomorrow. Here, here. Craig. Here, here. It's right. Get rid of Linda Sarsour and Tamika Mallory. But I have to go back to Donald Trump. Look at all that's happened this week with 
there's a, an investigation. He is a Russian asset. And I'm concerned about his contempt for the rule of law, suborning perjury, and it's backed up with documents. Um, he's, he's tearing America apart, and I fear it, it's deliberate. Eric. We didn't coordinate this, but I was going the same place Patty was uh, with the Women's March. More power to the people who want to get out tomorrow uh, in maybe inclement weather and exercise their First Amendment rights and protest a whole litany of things that they're protesting. But the leadership of this march in Washington and the DNA that's involved in this leadership now going back three years and its links to anti-Semitism and to Louis Farrakhan uh, is, is, is disgusting and people need to be more conscious about putting a distance between themselves and that DNA. Ed? In Colorado, we've seen good bills, we've seen questionable bills introduced, but we've seen nothing quite like what Washington State has, a bill that would allow the first legal human composting in America. In fact, the senator who's sponsoring Jamie Peterson said people from all over the state have written him saying they're very excited about the prospect of becoming a tree. What? (laughs) It is time to say something nice. Patty? Well, we already have plenty of dead wood, but around that... (laughs) Let's talk about something that is not Deadwood, the Maraid, a march that has been extremely successful for decades in Colorado, celebrating Martin Luther King, kicks off on Monday morning. Patty, for a long time, has been the Babe Ruth of this show, but it's like watching five home runs in a playoff game tonight. Very well done, Patty. Craig. I want to salute Colorado Senator Cory Gardner for standing up to Donald Trump when he lifts sanctions on Oleg Deripaska who's uh, linked with Paul Manafort and Konstantin Kalimnik, and now he's making this guy a fortune, this kleptocrat from Russia. Cory Gardner voted against that, and I hope when the evidence comes in from Mueller and Cohen and David Pecker and Rick Gates, Cory Gardner will do the right thing. Eric. With tongue only slightly in cheek, let me suggest that there is a good side benefit to this shutdown, which is we might be spared the spectacle and charade of a State of the Union speech. And on the flip side of that, we're spared one more congressional junket led by Nancy Pelosi and all. So no State of the Union, perhaps, no congressional junket. Maybe life's not that bad. Nice job finding the silver lining. Ed, I had the opportunity to do a deep dive this week on the Opportunity Zones program. Maybe one of the best things that's come out of the Trump administration. This was an economic development tax break uh, stuffed into the federal tax reform of 2017. And it's fascinating to see cities like Denver and Aurora working really hard to reinvigorate low-income areas while also working hard to make sure they're not being gentrified. This could be the best tax break we've seen from Washington in a generation. That is all the time we have for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. Thanks for tuning in. Before we go, I want to tell you about some pretty cool programming on this weekend. Both Saturday and Sunday afternoons, we're featuring some great how-to programs from our friends at Blueprint.com. From photography to jewelry making and even furniture rehab, there's something for everyone. So check it out this weekend, 1 to 4 o'clock both days. For everyone here at CPT12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night. Good night.